Well, hey there, TMC followers. Just wanted to give you a quick heads up. Uh, my wife and I were in Alaska for a about just over a week, and we're helping her family get ready to move down to Idaho. So we were out, but Dave had this fascinating conversation with Glenn Packiam while I was away. Now we want to share it for you. I think you're going to really enjoy it. You're listening to the Monday Christian Podcast, the program dedicated to helping you put into action the truth of God's Word that you hear on Sunday to your everyday life on Monday. And now, here are your hosts, Ezra Beyer and David Hartkopf. Welcome back to another episode of the Monday Christian. Dave here. Uh, If you notice, my co-host is gone for the week. He's in Alaska in in the North Pole uh, with his wife and family, spending some time there. And uh, today we have a very special guest, uh, Reverend Dr. Glenn Packiam. And for those of you that uh, don't know him, uh, Glenn Packiam is an associate senior pastor at New Life Church in Colorado Springs. Uh, He's actually the lead pastor of one of their uh, eight campus congregations, and uh, he serves at New Life Downtown. He's a senior fellow at Barna Group and uh, a visiting fellow at St. John's College, Durham University. And uh, he's also an adjunct professor at at Denver Seminary. He has authored several books, the most recent of which we're actually not going to chat about today, but we'll let him talk about it a little bit at the end of well, called The Resilient Pastor. But actually, we're going to be interviewing him today about uh, his work, uh, Worship and the World to Come. He's uh, an ordained priest uh, in the Anglican Church in North America at the ACNA. He's a regular conference speaker, and uh, one of the things that I appreciate most about him uh, is how he navigates uh, social media and just um, his public voice. Uh, if you follow him on Twitter, uh, he has a way of speaking to the culture in a way that's winsome, but is also clear. And so uh, we're looking forward to speaking with Glenn today. Glenn, welcome to the Monday Christian Podcast. Hi, Dave. Thank you so much for having me on. Good to talk to you today. Hey, speaking of hope, I just have to ask you, it's true you're a Denver Broncos fan, right? <laughs> it is true. Yeah. So is I, true. I saw your comments, and I was like, man, he's got to be feeling very hopeful. It's a quarterback-driven league. You, ha- you have a, a Pro Bowl-level talent now in Russell Wilson. Are you feeling hopeful about this coming season? Man, I tell you what, Dave, I became a Broncos fan when, when I moved to Colorado, and Brian Greasy was the quarterback. So I was a fan just because I lived here, and uh, but now that we have Russell Wilson, it's like I have Peyton Manning level hope uh, for this season. <laughs> oh, oh, wow! So okay, so Brian Greasy, uh, I was I'm originally from Detroit, so his connections yeah. to the University of Michigan. I actually watched yeah. him play there, uh, but yeah, the the days of youth and uh, yeah, the Broncos fans are pretty happy these days. Are you a hockey Very. fan? Just just out of curiosity, you know, I, I'm not, but I'm aware that the Avs are a good team <laughs> and that they're doing yeah. well in the playoffs. So I'll I'll turn on a game and 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 cheer them on, but I'm not ordinarily a hockey fan. Yeah, Ez and I both grew up on skates, so I, I just had to ask you uh, that before we got into the book here. Um, so. Uh, you dedicated this book uh, to your mom and dad, and uh, we ask this to every person that comes on the podcast, but can you just tell us a little bit about uh, about your growing up years and how you came to faith in Christ? So what does your faith journey look like? Yeah, I love that question. I, I, I'm from Malaysia, and it's where I grew up. Um, my parents have an interesting story of faith as well. I'll just briefly mention a few things. My mom was raised Anglican. A couple generations of of being an Anglican. My dad um, was raised Hindu, and they met at the University of Singapore. My mom was born in Singapore. My dad in Malaysia. 
and they met at the University of Singapore. And as things got serious, uh, she basically said, look, I'm not marrying a, a Hindu. And he became a Christian. But not, you know, I, I tell it kind of facetiously sometimes as this as if it was like a dating as evangelism sort of strategy. But the truth, you know, the truth is. Uh, he was really he, he was drawn by the love of God and by uh, the story of Jesus. And so by the time my older sister and I came along, we were born into, you know, homes that that uh, or a home that uh, really believed in Jesus. And, and my parents had experienced kind of a born again faith by by then. Um, they were being discipled by a Baptist pastor. They attended this small group a Bible study midweek while re remaining at their Anglican church on the weekends. And uh, and I remember my mom uh, being the one that led me to the Lord and she would talk to me about the Bible and she would talk to me about Jesus and she would talk to me about the cross. And I remember going over John 316 with her. And so yeah. th that's probably my earliest kind of memory of coming to faith. But, you know, like so many Christian kids and, and eventually we left the Anglican church and, and attended a, a Pentecostal church. Uh, there was a fervent about altar calls and kind of a, a dread about hell that I probably responded to half a dozen or a dozen altar calls before I left home for college. You know, there there was that those early probably uh, initiation into faith with my mom, but then a church life, you know, many, many moments of coming to Jesus. So um, I, I something I, I noticed in your writing and have appreciated, you seem to have a very ecumenical understanding of the body of Christ. I just... You, you don't, uh, I don't hear you uh, becoming a mouthpiece for some certain denomination or faith tradition, although you, you are associated with a denomination. Uh, maybe just comment how those different experiences has helped you value the different parts of the body of Christ. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, I think growing up like that, you know, with this sort of early memories of an Anglican church service, love for the scriptures, thanks, you know, to the Baptist pastor who discipled my parents, and then being introduced to kind of this charismatic movement renewal that was happening in the 70s and 80s and, and sweeping the globe. I'm grateful for those foundations. I'm grateful for, for that mix of um, influences and streams. And even in my own life, you know, I have sometimes felt not quite at home in any one tradition, yeah. you know, in the charismatic world, I feel like, oh, gosh, am I, am I too academic or too intellectual? Uh, is the life yeah. of the mind welcome here? Some I have felt that way in some settings, and then in other settings, I, I, I'm in. I think, gosh, if only there was a bit more of this, a tenderness or openness to the, uh, the reality of the, the Spirit's presence with us even now. So yeah, there, there's a gift and a challenge that comes with us. So I think yeah. the gift is being able to have an appreciation for the church. Uh, the challenge is you have to be okay with never quite feeling at home uh, in yeah. in one one tribe. You know. Yeah, what my wife has has kind of told me in the last couple of years. Of course, we were talking before about just some of my journey um, in, in schooling and meeting people from so many different backgrounds. And honestly, when you sort of grow up in a denomination or context, you tend to have like I get there's like a sociological thing that you want to sort of define yourself as unique from the other parts of Christendom. So you almost have maybe I want to call like pejorative assumptions yeah. about other parts of the body of Christ. And then, you know, you meet some of these folks and I've, you know, met evangelical Catholics to yeah. everywhere in, and Pentecostals and everywhere uh -huh. in between and sort of, you know, you get into a corporate worship service. And I, I remember the first time I was in sort of one of these more ecumenical settings, um, one of the priests who was sort of officiating had this clerical collar on, and I was like, oh, that guy's, f he's formal, right? 
And then the service starts and he's got both hands in the air. And I'm just like, you know, you're not allowed to do that. That's uh-huh. not right. You know, and uh-huh. just um, sort of experiencing, I think there's this, when we, when we come together and when we learn from one another, like you were saying, no, we need to engage our minds, but also this present reality of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, if, if you need to sing that course again, it's okay. You know, like, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't, I don't know. We just, I guess we need each other. And my wife says, David, you're longing for heaven because there's no perfect place for you. You're going to feel like a, a, yeah. a sojourner uh, in some cases. Have you experienced that? Yeah, absolutely. Your wife is right. I think that yeah. is that kind of longing for, for heaven. Or, or I think of the phrase that C.S. Lewis used, that German word, Zenzucht, you know, this mm. idea of longing for a far off, off country, which is actually home. Um, yeah. And so there, it's a future-oriented longing, but yet it's this awareness that, and that's where we belong. And and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think of it in an escapist sense, like we're trying to get out of the, this earth or this yeah. world or anything like that. But I think in the sense of, of recognizing that part of the brokenness of creation is a fragmentation. Uh, yeah. in, a, in a very real way, you could read Genesis 3 through 11 as the story of the world coming apart, the fragmentation of the God and human relationship. You know, first, is there hiding from God and the fragmentation of the male-female a relationship as they blame one another, the fragmentation of the brotherhood or sisterhood. Uh, but we see it in the story of, of, of Cain and Abel, the brothers, uh, the story of, of the ground, the earth turning against humanity in, in the, the story of the flood, the story of Babel, the story of societies breaking apart. So in every sense of, 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 uh, of the um, picture of it, sin fragments, sin segments, yes. sin pulls apart. And the salvation, the sozos, this, this whole work of God uh, is a work of making things whole again, of putting everything back together again. So we are longing for that. And church unity is, is, you know, maybe one of the central pieces of that. Certainly seems that yeah. way theologically, the way Paul talks about it. But actually, the, even the unity of the church is just a signpost of this larger putting back together of heaven and earth and of yes. uh, the whole world itself. You you mentioned uh, in the sort of the introduction to your book, and you you expand on this through your writing here. But you, there's this great quote, and I'm I'm going to read you your own writing because uh, I think it's really good and a good setup for our conversation about Christian hope. You say Christian hope is not optimism, it's not positivity or an upbeat mood. Christian hope is not escapism, as you referenced just a minute ago. It's not the view that the world will get darker, but God will get us out of here. Christian hope is not progress. It does not emerge from potential or possibility. Christian hope is uniquely shaped by resurrection, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ and by the promise of our own future resurrection. Um, Just as an introduction, uh, because you you kind of approach hope, I think, from several different angles in some of the opening uh, chapters of your writing. But can you give our audience, the Monday Christian, a definition of Christian hope and uh, why you think, um, well, let's just start there. Can yeah. you define Christian hope for us? Well, I, thanks for reading that, that quote. I, I, it's, uh, it's always an honor to hear someone read your words back to you, and, <laughs> and you think, oh, man, you know, that, that, maybe that will uh, help some people. Yeah. Um, but I, I think maybe to flesh that out a bit more, Dave, we could say, first of all, what it's not. Christian hope is not evacuation. It's not this <clears> idea that we're going to be airlifted out of here. Nobody thinks of an evacuation as a victory. I live in a military town. Uh, people don't, soldiers don't talk about a war uh, that they were evacuated from and call that a victory. Uh, secondly, Christian hope 
is not compensation. It's not God sort of making it up to us like, ooh, sorry, things were kind of bad down there, but come over to my house and we'll have some ice cream and, and some laughter yeah. and forget all about it. It's not God making it up to us. Um, I think what we are, what we're looking for is a word that is, again, a little bit beyond our language. And so we we, we, we reach for words like restoration. Christian hope mm -hmm. is a restoration, sort of this return to Eden. But even that is not quite right, because mm. the picture of the final city, if you will, in the, at the end of the Bible, is not the same as Eden. So in Eden, you had a garden, and in Revelation, you have a garden city. So it's not restoration as in a return. In a very real sense, it's restoration plus a kind of completion and perfection. It's mm -hmm. God getting the story on track and bringing something beautiful uh, in the end that in one way was what the, what the end was always supposed to be. It was where the story was always supposed to be heading. But in another way is a surprising, new, glorious uh, ending it's the kind of thing, it, it, you know, it's the stuff that made St. Augustine, that bishop in, in North Africa in the 300s, 400s, talk about um, this phrase, oh, happy fault or, or happy fall that gained for us so great a redeemer. A Augustine was kind of saying, without our sin, we would not know this savior. Mm -hmm. And it's not that God caused the fall or, or, or all of that, but God is such a creative and sovereign redeemer that he could take yes. the very worst thing, the fall of humanity, and somehow make an ending that's more beautiful than the ending it would have been had there been no fall. Um, so it's a long way of saying Christian hope. We, we, we don't have quite the words for it. It is kind of like restoration, but much more like completion and perfection. And that's why I say in a word, Christian hope is resurrection. Because when you look closely at Jesus's resurrected body, that's what we see. If it was just, quote unquote, restoration, then Jesus would have just come back from the <clears> dead. <throat> it would have been his same old body. But it's not that. He doesn't just come back from the dead. The gospel, right, the gospel writers are showing us how these eyewitnesses of the resurrection, the people who interacted with Jesus for those first few days and weeks, were scratching their heads. They're like, he appeared in rooms that were the doors were locked, and yet he was hungry and asking for food. But he had wounds, and you know, uh, but yet he was hidden from our sight. So it's not pure restoration. Uh, there's something about Jesus's body that had been through death and thus glorified, completed, and perfected. And that's our best clue. If you're trying to say, well, what's our best clue about our our hope? Well, the resurrection is our best clue into what this looks like. So not evacuation, not compensation, not quite restoration. Uh, maybe our best word for it is resurrection. Why do you think, um, so I think if I think of some of the the incomplete frameworks or some of the, the opportunity for growth frameworks, I think I grew up hearing about uh, eschatology in terms of escapism mostly. Yeah. And so by that you can probably guess where, where I'm coming from tradition-wise, but um, where did these come from, and um, how did this not mirror some of the earlier so Christianity sort of coming out of Judaism and some of the earliest writings? How, how did we get to where we are, and why does that matter in this cultural moment? Why does recovering, uh, I think you used the words Christian creedal hope, which is another, man, just a great statement, uh, but why, why is recovering that in this cultural moment so important? You know, there, there is a bit of a history and a story of how we got to where we are. I think Richard Middleton does a really nice job 
It's probably, I think it's actually in the appendix of his book, A New Heaven and a New Earth. But, but somewhere along the way, you know, I think the focus began to be less on the redemption of the cosmos and more and more on the redemption of the soul. Now, it wasn't meant to say the redemption of the cosmos isn't real. It was just sort of almost like a pastoral instinct to, to, to narrow the storyline uh, for the person that was in front of them. And so you, it kind of begins uh, in, in Augustine's day where we're talking about the sinner and the, the soul. But it really we really kind of get there in the medieval times where, uh, gosh, there just wasn't a lot to, to talk about with the future of new heavens and a new earth and even not even much about a resurrected body and much more about sort of where's your soul going, the eternal destiny of the human soul. Uh, you know, some people like N.T. Wright will will say that this is the influence of that later Platonism. Plato, of course, is, you know, hundreds of years before Paul and, and Jesus. But there's a surge of, of Neoplatonism that, that comes in um, shortly after Paul and all of that. And I think maybe that's true, where this notion of the uh, eternal soul and it's possible that as Christianity, uh, you know, split between the Greek um, kind of edge of, of the Christian world and the Latin or West edge, you know, you, you kind of get um, different schools of thought developing there. But but what they're losing is they're losing the sense that earlier Christians had for the first few hundred years, which was this firm conviction, a very Jewish uh, conviction that the creator created the body and he intends to redeem it. It's that phrase that Job says, yet... Uh, you know, in my flesh, I will see God. I know that my Redeemer lives. Um, what's at stake? I think it's the, really the key question, because the historical question is an interesting one and a complicated one. But really, yeah. the one for us is, you know, what do we lose in this cultural moment if we don't have this kind of um, embodied or physical view? I think I think there's a few things, Dave. I think one of the things that could happen is our own sense of the mission of the church becomes truncated, becomes smaller. Yes. So if if our notion of the gospel is just about souls, then our mission is going to be just about souls. But if the gospel is meant to be good news for all creation, that God intends, God the creator intends to rescue and redeem um, everything that he's made. Uh, and of course, for human beings, I want to be, be clear, for human beings, it requires a kind of faith and 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 trust in God. I'm not talking about universalism here. Um, but if if the picture of the gospel is wider than that, then the picture of the mission of the church has to be wider than that. And so sometimes, you know, I, I talk to friends who work for uh, ministries who are doing work like providing clean water or uh, orphan care or, or even uh, what is sometimes called creation care. People say, well, well, hang on, those are just distractions from the real mission of getting souls saved. But if we say, no, the kingdom of God, when God's rule arrives in fullness, it's going to result in uh, the, the, the bodily resurrection of those who put their trust in Christ and the restoration of creation, the perfection of creation itself. Then everything that we do now, whether that's loving our neighbors or uh, stewarding <clears throat> the world or taking care of the poor and the marginalized, everything we do now it is a signpost, it points toward, it hints toward, or to use the New Testament word, it bears witness to yes. the kind of king that Jesus is and the kind of kingdom that he's bringing uh, into our midst. Yes, the already not yet. Uh, I, I enjoyed some of the some of the comments you made about that, because if you think it's like a, 
um, it's a sweet by and by, but it's not a now. If there's no now component, I think you're less likely to engage in, you know, whether it's social justice or, um, you know, taking care of the poor. And if, if uh, so from my tradition, uh, a person like John Wesley uh, intensely, you know, the, some of the early Methodists, I think, had a real concern for for people. And it's yeah. because their theology, I think, had an understanding that this yeah. was more than um, sort of a get this soul mm-hmm. out of, out of, you know. Yeah, so um, yeah. In, in following... And following that up, um, you, you talk about specifically how corporate worship yeah. um, shapes our understanding of hope. And you, you're, there's a lot of a good research in your book, but you sort of follow these two congregations, a Presbyterian one and a Pentecostal one. And you, you see how they're overlap and how they're different. But can you just talk a little bit about um, the, the three ways that... or uh, it's chapter one or two, you talk about the three ways that people understand corporate worship. Yeah. Uh, mission, I think it was mission, formation, uh-huh. and I have the encounter. third one, encounter. encounter. Yeah. yeah, so talk to a little bit about those differences, and is there a right, is there a right one, or do we need <laughs> all of them? I, I know I'm setting you up here, but just, just talk a little bit about that for us. Yeah, I, I kind of had this hypothesis even before doing my doctoral work, Dave, just just pastorally, you know, and kind of being around church world for so long, my early years as a worship leader, songwriter, I kind of had this hypothesis, this theory that really when people approach a worship service or a, you know, church service, that we come to it with, with conscious or subconscious paradigms, or if you'd like, uh, ways of understanding the purpose for this service. And, and one of them was, okay, we gather together here for mission. We're really here to kind of uh, set the stage for other people to find out about Jesus. And every church service is about a mission. It's about, you know, you know inviting lost people and getting people saved. Um, a, a second kind of paradigm um, way of understanding the purpose of a church service is the idea that we come together to be formed, that we need to be taught and fed and understand everything, and and this is how we grow to have our minds renewed and all of that. And then the third one is, is gosh, you know, we gather just to meet with God. Like, I'm here to meet with God, and this we're going to sense the Spirit working among us. And I, I think as I, um, you know... Um, try to develop this theoretical framework a bit more in in doctoral work, I looked for um, literature that would kind of support or, you know, challenge or confront or whatever. And instead, what I discovered is that you can actually draw some root systems to each of these things. So that impulse to make Sunday all about reaching the lost, that's an impulse that comes from the Second Great Awakening onwards. You know, you might even say... It's the broader American evangelical influence where we say this is about a song, a sermon, and an altar call. And then the formation one, I mean, that broadly speaking comes through us through the Reformed tradition where, uh, again, all of the Reformation impulses to translate the scriptures and put worship not in Latin but in the language of the people and to write beautiful prayers and to, and to create catechisms. I mean, all of that stuff has this impulse, uh, this desire to say worship is about formation. It's about making sure that we're well-formed as disciples of Jesus. And then the encounter one kind of comes from the, the Pentecostal or charismatic um, stream, particularly in the last 50, 60 years or so, where we want to say, uh, hang on a minute, when we gather, something special is, is going to happen and we're going to meet God. Now, 
I happen to believe that all three of these paradigms are biblical. All yeah. three of them can be found in the scriptures. Um, in fact, all three of them are the Holy Spirit's work. The Spirit is the mm -hmm. spirit of mission, as we see in the book of Acts and elsewhere. The Spirit is the spirit of formation. Paul prays that the Holy Spirit will form uh, the Galatians. and you know Christ will be formed <clears throat> in them. That's the Spirit's work. And then the Spirit is the spirit of encounter. It's how we meet the risen Christ is through the very presence of the Holy Spirit. Um, but I also recognize, Dave, that we tend to favor one of these over the other two. And we can overemphasize them. So when we overemphasize one to the exclusion of the other two, we could actually end up distorting, um, distorting the reasons why we gather. Yeah. So do you think, I see, I, we have these chats around here, especially a lot of some of my students that are training to, to either sort of lead some part of corporate worship or, or actually uh, take most of the preaching side of it or most of the music side of it. But I, I, lo I like the idea of just thinking through purpose. So I'm not saying you have to, you know, understand the history of corporate worship and say this this one model best represents something um but how can, how can different traditions learn from one another so that we're not missing something so for example you know you mentioned in the book um you, you uh do weekly eucharist now at your church correct mm -hmm. was that yep. was that something that was always a part of of your congregational life no. And so, yeah, just to kind of tell a bit of a story there that might help with these three paradigms, I kind of recognize that in our church at New Life, we were heavy on encounter and even pretty heavy on mission. Like we're trying to reach the lost, you know, um, but lower on formation. And that's not necessarily to say that there's no discipleship stuff. Of course there was, but it was lower. It, it, it was not, um, it didn't really factor into the decision-making grid, if you will, conscious or subconscious, when you were planning a weekend service. Um, and so, so we had to say, okay, so in what ways can we, can we up that quotient? How can we make sure that we can add a little bit more here? And one of the things, you know, we, we were, we're a church that in 2006, the founding senior pastor had a pretty public moral failure. And, and the new senior pastor, Brady Boyd, came in in August of 2007. And I started, you know, switching my role a little bit from being primarily a worship leader to being a preaching pastor at our Sunday evening service in 2009. And I began to realize, Dave, look, you can sub out the name or the characters that are on stage, but if, if everything else is the same, how is this different? How is this, how is this yeah. better? And, and we that's when I and my colleagues, we, we began to recognize we need to do a little bit better job here with formation and, and to think about worship not just as an expressive practice, an upward-moving practice, but a formative practice, a practice mm. that actually shapes us. And so it was out of that that came this whole desire to say, what if we did weekly communion? And how would that change um, how we approach the service as pastors to make sure that we understand that our sermon is meant to be pointing to Jesus? And how would it change things for our people um, so that they would they would uh, come to to recognize that the center of the service was not the worship team or the preacher, but the table of the Lord. Yeah, it's interesting. The congregations that don't have the the table every week also are. I hear people saying things like, "Oh, we need we need more gospel in this service, right? We need more gospel." And I'm like, then 
celebrate the table every week because uh-huh. there's a whole lot of gospel there, and you can remember it and receive present grace and anticipate this hope that we have, right? So yeah. uh, I, coming from a, a place that doesn't do it weekly, uh, we've actually moved pretty recently to monthly, which was a, mm-hmm. I think it was a pretty big deal for us, mm-hmm. um, but we're trying to move in that direction. Yeah. Um, so mm-hmm. how is, you, you mentioned hope in the Holy Spirit, Um Talk, talk to me just a bit about how you sort of flesh that out um, in connected to corporate worship. You mentioned it's eschatological, it's powerful and power. It's almost mm-hmm. sacramental. Um, t- mm-hmm. Talk to me a little bit about um, how the Holy Spirit brings hope in the context of corporate worship. So let me just say this one quick comment about the, the research design. So I studied songs that people said were songs of hope. And then, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. tracked these two churches uh, with some in-depth kind of focus groups and and observation stuff and interviews to see how people experienced hope. So how hope was expressed and experienced. And one of the discrepancies, and this is, you know, oftentimes researchers who are doing qualitative research, you look for these little gaps because that's when maybe you're, you're, you're doing something right. Um, there was this gap between the songs that people said, you know, you know, brought them hope. Those songs were not really about the resurrection. They were not really about the future, actually. They were quite a bit about the present tense. They were quite a bit about me, I, me, my. And they were quite a bit about um, uh, sort of the, the here and now. Um, but at the same time, when I, when I went to these churches, people were describing an, an experience of hope that was pretty consistent. Uh, it came through a variety of different means, you know, Presbyterian church, talked about the prayer moments and the potlucks charismatic church talked about the energy and the lights, you know? Um, and so it was consistent. It was a little bit varied, but it was also kind of resilient. Like they, they figured out ways to, to re-engage that hope. So it raised some theological questions. Like, how is this possible? You know, like if, 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 you know, if this is the case, um, why is that? And I, you know, at the heart of this, Dave, it has to do with the mercy and kindness of God. Amen. Yes. You know, that God isn't waiting for us to get everything perfect and everything right. And then he says, okay, now I'll come and minister to you. You know, I mean, the, the kindness of God is that he's always, as Lewis mm-hmm. talked, C.S. Lewis talked about this, he's always condescending to us. He's always coming down uh, to us, you know, the condescension of God. Um, but then specifically, yeah, the theology of the spirit. One One thing that emerged here was, that the Holy Spirit is God's eschatological presence. Now that's, mm-hmm. you know, it's academic jargon. What we're really, what I'm really trying to say is the Holy Spirit is the foretaste of the future. Yes. So we don't have to be singing about the future to experience the future. Mm. We don't have to be singing specifically about resurrection and the great kingdom come. We just have to be singing in, in worship to God and then all of a sudden he's communicating. Remember what Paul said, the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Amen. So there's a sense in which as we're worshiping, we're experiencing that righteousness of God, that peace of God, that joy of God. And in experiencing that, we're actually foretasting the future. And then the second thing is that the Holy Spirit is God's powerful and empowering presence. Um, one of the models of hope uh, that I, I work with in the book is a, a secular model of hope from a cognitive perspective what it does uh, with our minds and even from a human level hope is when you feel a sense of agency and you have a clear pathway an unobstructed pathway so you've got power and path and 
and the whole when you're when you're in worship a couple things happen one you're acknowledging god's agency you know every time yes. we sing how great is our god or great are you lord you know how great thou art whatever you know mm -hmm. Waymaker. We're we're basically saying you have all the agency <clears throat> and you can clear the path you can make a way where there is no way and the result of singing like that is that it produces hope because it reminds you who's got the agency and then of course the great paradox as we attribute it or ascribe greatness to the lord he returns a power to us and this is paul saying that i can do all things through christ who gives me strength so yes. we ascribe strength to him and then he gives us strength so Amen. and that's what the holy spirit's doing as well and then the the, the third sort of piece of the holy spirit is uh, God's sacramental presence. And what I mean by that, uh, Dave, is just like when you think about baptism, it's just water, right? Well, yes, but it becomes this moment of encounter with God or or, or bread and wine. It's just bread and wine, right? Yes, but even Protestants mm. believe that when you come with faith, Christ fills you by the Spirit in your heart. Yeah. Um, so in a similar way, it's just music, right? It's just mm. sounds and notes and songs and lyrics. Uh, no, not quite. It's the Holy Spirit working through our whole bodies, our brain chemistry, our aesthetics, our senses, uh, our emotions to communicate the presence of God to us. And specifically for my work uh, to communicate hope to us. So you mentioned that um, in our culture, we have tended to privatize some of this. So you can see that in some of the language. Uh, you can see this in some of the way people talk about um, their walk with the Lord, and not to minimize any of those things. Or, you know, if you read the Psalms, uh, sort of a corporate songbook of Israel, you see plenty of very personal I and my. Yeah. But there, there is a danger maybe of, of detaching from community. So can you talk a little bit about Christian hope and its connection yeah. to community? What a great question. And you're right about the Psalms. There's a lot of—it's deeply personal— but it's never private. And one of the ways you see that in the Psalms is even an individual song like Psalm 51 gets purposed for corporate praying or corporate singing. Yes. And, and, you know, how do we know that? Someone might say, well, how do you know that Psalm 51? Well, actually, this one doesn't even require any commentaries. You, you look at the end, you know, Psalm 51 is clearly David repenting for his sin with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. But at the very end, it says, and repair the broken walls around Jerusalem. You say, well, well wait a second here. They're, they're, in David's day, the walls were not broken down. No, yeah. the walls were broken down after exile, which means, and this is a, you know, you have to do a little bit of thinking here or reading the rest of the scriptures. The sin of Israel's idolatry, the prophets referred to it as spiritual adultery. So idolatry yeah. was spiritual adultery. And the reason Jerusalem was in ruins was because of this spiritual adultery, this infidelity to God, their, their first love. And, and so, of course, it makes perfect sense that they would take an individual's prayer of repentance after his act of adultery, and it became the nation's prayer of repentance for their spiritual adultery. So the, 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 the Psalms teach us to, to be very personal, but never private, to always be connected with community. I think about one of the New Testament songs, Mary's song, the Magnificat. Again, my soul rejoices within me, magnify the Lord with me. And yet... Uh, the rest of the song goes on to talk about what God's going to do for the nation. Yes, He's going to yes. bring down the mighty from their thrones and lift up the lowly. So it's deeply personal, but it's never private. She's all, She's got an eye toward the larger community. And I think 
I think this is the tension we're, we're, we're trying to strike here as worship leaders, as pastors, as Christians, is to come into worship and say, yes, uh, here I am. Here is the God who loves me. You know, Paul said in Galatians, who loved me and gave himself for me. It is yeah. deeply personal. And yet, because of that, I, I'm connected with this person and that person. And there's a, there's a wider picture here that I'm meant to pay attention to and be aware of because that's what the gospel does. Um, in, in your uh, context where you pastor, um, how, how are some, how, what are some ways that you sort of, because obviously, like you just mentioned, there, there is a personal narrative here. So it's not like we want to react yeah. and only talk about this cosmic narrative, but how, how does the meta narrative or like mm -hmm. the, the way that you share when you, uh, either through song or when you're, when you're, when you're preaching or the language that you use, how does it reflect both that per, sort of personal and the cosmic narrative? Well, how do you, how do you emphasize both so that we don't end up with, uh, it's all about me mm. or it's all about the cosmic and there's no personal identification yeah. like you see in the Psalms. You know, oftentimes people pick on song lyrics right away and they go, Oh, look yeah. at all the I means mice. And okay, maybe some of that. Um, and, and certainly some songs you can, you know, there's songs that can use I, me's and my's, singular pronouns, and not be um, individualistic versus yeah. other songs. It is my breakthrough, my miracle, that kind of thing. Um, but I, I, I want to say there's actually a couple of elements in the service that we could think about. And for us at New Life, um, it's as simple as lighting. So during the during the worship and song section of the service, we want the lighting up. We don't want yes. it to be a dark, dark. Preach room. it, preach it. <laughs> and I I get it. We, we've got wonderful lighting technicians who 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 want to make sure that that they can use their 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 um, craft artfully and worshipfully. I love that. But the the caveat is always okay so long as the room doesn't have to be dark. You can you might dim it a little bit, set a bit of a mood. But man, we got to be able to see one another. We got to be able to look around the room and recognize faces. And oh, there's so and so, and there's that person who was asking for prayer on Facebook. And there's that yeah. you know, that we, we've got to recognize the saints. So it's as simple as lighting sometimes. And then secondly, it, it's also about if you're the person in charge of shaping the service, finding moments where people can turn toward one another, um, whether it's a, a, a greet time at the very least. Or in more liturgical churches, the passing of the peace, which becomes much more meaningful. Uh, you're saying to one another, the peace of the Lord is with you. Maybe it's like, uh, in, you know, uh, the, the legendary stories of Jack Hayford's church, always doing prayer circles every week where people get in twos and threes and pray over one another. It could be something like that. Um, and then a, a third thing, one of my friends and colleagues here, Daniel Grothy, he likes to talk about his goal is to name as many names as possible throughout the, the service. You know, so yeah. whether that's in the person giving announcements and calling out names or the preacher telling stories, you know, to remind one another that we are not here at the opera. This is not some yeah. sort of stuffy performance. Uh, we're here as the family of God. And so those are all ways that really go far beyond just the pronouns in a song. Glenn, I want to respect your time today, and I know that you have something coming up and that you need to depart. I could sit here for hours with you, man. I've really appreciated your time. But just for, um, there are a lot of in our, in our audience uh, for various reasons uh, that have been either personally affected by what's happening in Ukraine right now, um, COVID, a lot of different things that have gone on in our world the last couple of years. Um, we have many that tune in um, that wouldn't identify themselves as Christian, and maybe they're feeling that 
lack of hope today, uh, maybe that no hope and no one to turn to, um, could you offer them as we close today uh, just a word of hope, a word of Christian hope um, as we close? Yeah, thank you, Dave. You know, when, when we think about hope, our English word is deceptive because hope um, sometimes sounds like a wish. I'm ho- I hope uh, the Broncos do good this year, <laughs> as you mentioned. Yeah. Um, but for the Christian, hope is a sure and certain thing. It's, an, it's a confident assurance. And the reason it's sure and certain, the reason it's a confident assurance is because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And this is exactly what Paul says to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, look, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, our preaching is in vain, our faith is in vain. And then he says, and actually, we of all people are to be pitied. Um, But thanks be to God, Jesus Christ is indeed risen from the dead. And that means that your worst day, our worst day, will not be the last day. Uh, There will be a great final day, a great day of the mm-hmm. Lord when death is swallowed up in victory, when we who have put our trust in Christ will experience resurrection, and we'll all come to see on the other side of that, on the other side of our resurrection, we'll all come to see how it is that our labor in the Lord uh, has not been in vain. And that that's the whole, that's the way chapter 15 ends, where he says, you can be steadfast, immovable, excelling in your work in the Lord knowing that your labor in the Lord will not be in vain. So my encouragement is stay close to Jesus. Trust that because he's the risen one, your life, your faith, your love, your labor will not be in vain. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, Glenn, what's the best way to find you? I know what's the best way to find you. So you've obviously uh, written a new book called The Resilient Pastor. We have barely touched that, okay. uh, but I would I would check it out. Um, what's the best ways to, to kind of interact with you and find your writing? Yeah, glennpackium.com is probably the best one-stop uh, kind of website, Glenn with two N's, Packium, P-A-C-K-I-A-M, glennpackium.com. And you can find links to music, some of these YouTube videos, some of the stuff we've discussed today, Dave, uh, has been out there on, on a few different uh, YouTube clips or whatever. And then links to all the books, including the Resilient Pastor book, but uh, a wider initiative that I'm launching with Barna, to help encourage pastors and church leaders over the next year or two. Glenn, thank you so much for your time. And everybody, uh, the links to his information, the books, and his website will be in the show notes. Thanks for uh, tuning in today, and we'll talk to you next week. You've been listening to the Monday Christian Podcast, the program that helps you put into action the truth of God's Word that you hear on Sunday to your everyday life on Monday. For more info on this program, simply visit our website, themondaychristian.com. That's themondaychristian.com.